I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, we return to our ongoing feature, 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Uh, Just to be clear, a couple of people have got in touch and said, have you got a list of the 2001 movies that you're going to do? Obviously, no. It's a random figure picked out of thin air because it's in the title of a movie. And at the rate we're going at the moment, in order to get 2001 movies, I will have to live until the age of about 252. Incidentally, I'm recording this episode on my 56th birthday. Thanks very much. Anyway, this week, 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die brings you one of my favourite films of all time, a film about which I have waxed lyrical, about which I have done onstage presentations, and about which, in part, I have pretty much written a book. Slayed in Flame. From the back of the Torrey Canyon continues. Well, it was round for you dinner time. Said you were six weeks behind. Said they'd be back Friday, so you'd better have your pay, Andy. Can't expect us to keep them off your back forever. Did you hear what I said? He wants those drums back. Well, he ain't having them. Where do you think you're going with that lot then? Out. Out? You haven't even been in yet. Say hello to your father. Hello to your father. So the first thing to say about Slade in Flame is that technically it's not actually called Slade in Flame. It's called Flame. But because of the way the title appears on screen at the beginning of the movie, it has generally been referred to for as long as I can remember by everybody as Slade in Flame. But technically it is Flame. It's a pop movie from the mid-1970s, and it is, in my opinion, the Citizen Kane of British pop movies. And to understand why, you have to understand something about the British pop movie scene in the 60s and 1970s. When we think of British pop movies of the 60s, we think of the movies of the Beatles. We think of Hard Day's Night and Help, and we tend to have rather glowing memories of those films. We forget about movies like Gonks Go Beat, which is a film you may well not have seen. And if you haven't, really, there's no need to check it out or track it down because it's every bit as terrible as the title sounds. It's a film which manages to pair the Graham Bond organisation with Kenneth Connor, Terry Scott and Arthur Mullard. It's one of those British pop movies that makes you think, what is it about pop music that Britain thinks goes really, really naturally with strange end-of-the-pit sitcom weirdness It is a toe-curlingly embarrassing film, and yet somehow it's got good pop musicians in it. 
Now, in the early 1970s, there were some quite interesting examples of British pop movies. Most notably, that will be the day in 1973 and Stardust in 1974 with David Essex kind of climbing the, the greasy pole to stardom alongside the likes of Ringo Starr and Adam Faith. Both of those movies were fairly well received. I remember that'll be the day coming out and essentially being like a British equivalent of American graffiti, less cool, but somehow equally collectible. It came out with a brilliant soundtrack album. In fact, when that'll be the day and Stardust came out, everybody wanted to go and see them because David Essex was such a superstar. But because of a double A certificate, you had to be over the age of 14, which meant if you're an 11 year old, you had to sneak in, which I did manage to do at the classic in Hendon. In 1975, we get Slade in Flames, released at the very, very beginning of the year, and it's Slade's entry into the pop music canon. Round about the same time, 1976, you get Never Too Young to Rock, which is a film which stars the Rubettes and Mud, who appear in a food fight in the middle of a roadside cafe performing Tiger Feet while having mashed potatoes thrown at them. A couple of years earlier, you have Take Me High, a film in which Cliff Richard, and I promise I'm not making this up, invents the Brumberger on a barge. In the middle of all this madness, Slade in Flame looks like an absolute pinnacle of artistic achievement. And in fact, it's a film which has grown in stature over the years. Slade originally started thinking about making a movie because their manager, Chaz Chandler, said to them, look, it worked for the Beatles. Why wouldn't it work for you? And by the mid-1970s, they pretty much conquered the British rock charts. They were a huge glam sensation. Although they often weren't taken seriously by the music press, they actually had years and years of proper musical experience behind them. They could really play. They could really write songs. And as it turned out, they weren't bad actors either. But because the Beatles films were kind of knockabout romps and because Chaz Chandler thought that actually what they were going to do was to make an updated version of something like A Hard Day's Night... The film project began life as a sci-fi spoof called, and forgive this terrible pun, The Quite-A-Mess Experiment. Yes, that's right, The Quite-A-Mess Experiment. In that original version of the film, Dave Hill, the guitarist in Slade, was reportedly killed by a triffid in the first 15 minutes of the film. Slade thought the idea was fairly terrible, although the idea of Dave Hill being killed by a triffid in the first 15 minutes is still relatively funny. Instead, they said that what they wanted to do was something a little bit grittier, a little bit tougher, something which said something about the life of a rock star. Now, at the very beginning, some people didn't think this was a great idea. Chaz Chandler apparently didn't think that lifting the the curtains and letting people see behind the, the image of the rock star was such a great idea. After all, Slade's key fan market was teenagers who just thought they were absolutely wonderful and didn't want to know that life as a pop star wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Also, Dave Hill rather prophetically said that he thought it would damage the band's image. And the fact that the film didn't do well, but took a large section out of their diary did indeed mean that perhaps Slade in Flame was not the best commercial move. It was, however, I think the best artistic move. Right. Tony will put you in the picture as to where we go from here. But uh, do you actually like what we do? (laughs) My personal preference really doesn't come into it. Let me put it this way. I don't smoke cigarettes, but I managed to sell a few. All right. You see, it's all a matter of packaging, Paul. Packaging, promotion. I'm not good if he's finger. (laughs) Yes, but that's part of the problem. They're a well-known commodity. You're unknown, and there are thousands to choose from. 
We're just going to make you stand out a little. So what happened was they got a script by Andrew Birkin, which was about a 60s band from the north. They were bought up by an investment company and sold to the public like so many fish fingers. The script was okay, but it was kind of old hat. It was that familiar story about rock and roll is a tough life on the road. And Slade didn't think it captured their life on the road. So what they did was they got one of the writers, the final script is credited to Andrew Birkin and additional dialogue by Dave Humphreys to come on tour with them and see what their life was actually like. While they were on tour, they recounted stories about their own past, about groups they'd used to be in, about how the band was formed, about fallouts and fall-ins that they'd had together and about the other bands that they'd worked with. Those stories somehow got themselves into the script. And by the time they got to filming, they had something that looked strangely like a documentary. I mean, Slade aren't playing Slade. They're playing a band called Flame, who were pretty close to Slade. And because they weren't actors, because they were musicians, they were playing characters that were very, very close to home. That said, they're surrounded by actors who really can act. In the cast of Slade in Flame, we have, for example, Johnny Shannon playing their first manager, Ron Harding. Johnny Shannon was partly cast because he'd been in performance, which I think still stands the test of time as one of the greatest rock movies of all time. was recently doing a, a memorial service for Nick Rogue, who shares directing credit on that film with Donald Camel. And we showed a couple of clips for performance and they still look every bit as edgy as the film did when it first came out. In fact, the release of performance was famously delayed because the studio took one look at the original cut and thought it was the most disgusting, depraved thing they'd ever seen and simply refused to release it. There was one famous comment made about performance, which was, even the bathwater is dirty. So in the form of Johnny Shannon, we have a connection to performance, which tells you something about the way that Slade in Flame was going. Then we have Tom Conti as the manager who comes from London, goes up to the north looking for a band to buy. He's not interested in music or at least not interested in pop music. What he wants to do is to find an investment, something that will make his mark in the investment business. So he sends his minions to skirt the clubs in the north and he finds a band who are then named Flame. They're brought down to London. They're signed into a contract which basically ties them up with his investment company and they're then sold to the public. And they have hits, but things pretty quickly turn sour. Now, Tom Conti had done a lot of television before that and, of course, stage, but he hadn't had a major leading role in a film. And Slade in Flame gave him just that. Hello. Last we meet. This is Robert Seymour. I take it Tony's explained what we have in mind. Yeah, yeah. I assume you have no objections. Why else? Pardon? Why else? Uh, this is Russell Hayes, Robert. Uh, he drives the van and shifts around the equipment. They did request for him to be included. He's the roadie. I see. I think it's rather more a question of why them than why us, as far as you're concerned. Hmm? Basically, what I have in mind is this. That with the right management, we can turn the group into a success. Since it's their wish, you're welcome to be involved for the present. Still the road, eh? That's what I said. Anything else? The film's directed by Richard Longcrane, who would go on to direct things like Brimstone and Treacle, The Missionary, Bellman and True, and a very sharp version of Richard III, starring Sir Ian McKellen. After that, he also directed Wimbledon, a film which was actually quite a big hit, despite the fact that it wasn't critically very well received. So the film has proper actors and a proper director, and its secret weapon 
It has Alan Lake as Jack Daniels, who's the lead singer in the band that some of the members of Flame are playing with at the very beginning of the film. There's a famous story that Alan Lake, who had served time in prison and knew how to look after himself in a fight, got fired from Flame after the first day of shooting. They were shooting a club scene down in London, and apparently he refreshed himself with a liquid lunch and got out of control and was thrown off the set. In fact, he was only allowed back onto the film, according to popular legend, because his wife, Diana Dawes, agreed to police his sobriety to make sure that he stayed on the straight and narrow. Again, all of that lends an air of danger to the movie, which I think is there in the film itself. As for the band... As we said before, Slade weren't actors, but they are pretty good on film. Noddy Holder was always a charismatic frontman, and he's quite at home in front of the camera. He really does command the scenes that he's in. Jim Lee is an interesting presence too. In Noddy Holder and Jim Lee, Slade had a brilliant songwriting partnership that I think to some extent has a touch of the Lennon and McCartney about it. I mean, it's melodic, but it's also rocking and outrageous. They did things that were memorable because they, they seemed to be pantomime but they also wrote absolutely brilliant, memorable tunes with fantastic lyrics. And as far as Slade in Flame is concerned, Jim Lee is kind of the heart of the movie as far as the music's concerned. He's the person who just wants to play in a band that are successful. Then we have Dave Hill playing, well, basically Dave Hill. I mean, it's a strange thing, but one of two things is true. Either Dave Hill is an absolutely brilliant actor who is fantastic at portraying a slightly irritating narcissistic guitarist, or that's Dave Hill. And then, of course, we have Don Powell, who, strangely enough, the narrative kind of follows. Don Powell, Slade's drummer, had a particular problem when it came to filming Slade in Flame. He'd been involved in a terrible car crash shortly before the film and suffered from amnesia. This meant that he had to memorise his lines shortly before shooting every scene. And because the narrative, in a way, follows his character as the band rises to fame and then falls from grace, he's a really central part of the drama. Like a bleeding bunch of Peter Pans, just like that. Getting close, just if things moving. Hey, you're doing all right, aren't you? It's what you wanted to do. I don't know. Don't the same anymore. Make a few records, that bit's okay. The rest of the time, bunch of bleeding ganks in the dinner jackets. What do you do, though? They all seem to like it. Well, if you don't want to get out, there's only one thing you can do. Let them get on with it. Let them all take themselves to pieces if they feel like it. You won't change anything by doing it to yourself. Nobody ever does. So what happens to me in the meantime? You'll survive, Charlie. You aren't doing badly now, as far as I can make out. Tell you what, why don't you come to the party tomorrow night? I'll let you meet a couple of them vultures, break open a bottle of baby shampoo together. Yeah, all right. I'm a bit old to get discovered, though, aren't I? Oh, they'll soon fix that for you. Ta-da, Harold. Cheerio. I actually think that that uncertain quality that Don Powell brings to the screen works perfectly for the character. It's as if his character is a fish out of water. He's in a world he doesn't understand and he's never quite sure what's going to happen next. And somehow, perhaps because of what had happened to Don Powell, that character rings true. 
So the story of Slade in Flame is that there are various bands, rival bands up in the north. They all end up together in something that forms something like a supergroup. They are bought up by the Seymour Trust, an investment company. They're brought down to London to record, to perform concerts. They're taken out to a pirate radio station where they meet a DJ played by Tommy Vance. The pirate radio station is then apparently attacked from the air by a helicopter. They're shocked and terrified, but somehow it makes the news. And we're led to believe that the whole thing is a publicity stunt. Very quickly, they become a teen sensation because they have a name that catches the attention, because they have a glowing onstage presence. There are some brilliant concert sequences in Slade in Flame in which the band are literally licked by flames thanks to some rather brilliant lighting. But as they become successful, they start to fall out with each other, with their management, and of course, with their first manager who refuses to let them go. And the story in short fashion is the story of their rise to fame and then how that fame itself tears them apart. Brilliantly to accompany the film, Noddy Holder and Jim Lee wrote some of Slade's best songs. In fact, Slade in Flame contains not only their greatest song of all time, How Does It Feel, but also Far, Far Away. I remember going to see Slade and Flame when it first opened in the UK in 1975. I think I was 12 years old. I was born in 1963. And I went to see it at the, the Hendon Odeon, which was my, my local Odeon. And I just loved the film. I loved the songs. I thought, how does it feel? It was haunting and melancholic and strange. I thought that Far, Far Away had a real crowd-pleasing quality. And the, the sequence in the film in which they play that song is brilliant. But actually, one of the things I like the most with the scenes of them playing up in clubs in the north. There's a brilliant sequence in which the band play Them Kind of Monkeys Can't Swing in this northern club where they're being watched by these talent scouts. And actually, it's, it's one of the best Slade performances I've ever seen. You forget that for ages and ages, they were kind of quite a hard rocking blues band before they became a glam band. Evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, just before we get started, the management have requested me to sniff out the owner of these. He's just found them in the gents. Mmm, still warm. She can't be far away. Now, come on, don't be shy. We don't want anybody catching cold. Winter drawers on. Oh, it's all right. We've just found they belong to him. <laughs> it's safe, Tina. Over his head. I was also completely in love with the spectre of Dave Hill in Flame. Dave Hill famously was the Slade guitarist who played guitars of all strange shapes and sizes. At one point in the middle of Slade in Flame, he plays a guitar that is literally shaped like a ball of fire. I'd seen him on top of the pops playing guitar that was shaped like a machine gun with the neck as the barrel of the gun. He had that super yob thing going on with his guitar shapes. And every time you saw Dave Hill, he was more outlandish, more outrageous, with bigger glam boots and a more ridiculous haircut. There's a 12-year-old seeing Dave Hill up there on the big screen in the Hendon Odeon in Slade in Flame. I thought Dave Hill was the most astonishing thing I'd ever seen. And I immediately decided that what I wanted to do was to become a rock star. Now, in order to do that, I'd have to get myself a strangely shaped guitar. But as anyone who knows anything about guitars knows, strangely shaped guitars don't come cheap. I mean, they're thousands and thousands of pounds. And Dave Hill apparently had thousands and thousands of them. 
So in a strange offshoot of the film, I came away from watching Slade in Flame, which is essentially a film about how the music business isn't great, about how being a pop star isn't all it's cracked up to be, thinking that what I wanted to do with my life was to be in the music business and be a pop star, or specifically to be Dave Hill. Actually, what happened then was I got hold of a magazine called Everyday Electronics, which I still have a copy of now. It cost something like 20p, and in it, it had a plan for how to make a flying V-style shaped guitar at home. All the components, everything, all in would cost you 20 quid. The magazine came with plans of how to make the guitar, and it said it would take two weeks, maybe a month to build. I went to school with the magazine, having seen Slade in Flame, and said, Sir, sir, I want to make this electric guitar. They said, you're lousy at making anything. You have no woodwork skills, and you can't play the guitar. I said, no, but I really want to do this, and this magazine says I can do it in two months. So they let me do it. It was something they lived to regret. It ended up taking me two years to build that guitar. And by the time I'd finished building it, glam rock had disappeared. Punk rock had taken over. And the idea of having a stupid V-shaped glam rock style guitar meant the guitar was out of date before it was even finished. But I did teach myself to play guitar on it. And in fact, I played in a number of bands using that guitar. In a really weird series of coincidences, at one point, I played that guitar in a band I was in with Dave Baddiel. Yes, that Dave Baddiel. We played under the brilliant name of The Spark Plugs. We never actually played any gigs in front of people, but we did play in a lot of front rooms on my homemade electric guitar. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Slade in Flame came out in the cinemas and the audience didn't like it very much. The reason's fairly simple. Teenagers didn't want to see that actually their heroes had feet of clay. Also, critics were rather sniffy. They'd got used at that point to saying that films with pop musicians in weren't very good and being very kind of snobby about the fact that pop musicians were messing around in movies at all. I confess that many years later, when I reviewed Spice World, the movie for Radio 1, I probably felt that same kind of snobbery. Although the difference is Spice World, the movie, genuinely is quite terrible, whereas Slade in Flame genuinely is quite brilliant. 
However, there was one critic who kind of understood the film, and that was Barry Norman. People often remember Barry Norman not having a fondness for horror films and having certain prejudices about genres of movies. But weirdly enough, Barry Norman actually got what Slade in Flame was about. He was impressed by the grittiness. He was impressed by the rawness. And perhaps most surprising of all, he was actually impressed by Slade. I remember seeing his review on the television and thinking, wow, it's not just me. Somebody else thinks that film is really good. I went to see Slade in Flames something like three times in the first week that it was out. And actually, for the second two visits, there was almost nobody else in the cinema. Now, this suited me absolutely down to the ground. I love an empty cinema. I love being able to see a movie in an environment in which there are meant to be loads of other people there. But you know what? None of them have turned up. Back then, nobody had mobile phones to annoy you in the cinema, but there was also something about sitting in an empty auditorium, watching a film about a band falling apart that seemed, well, weirdly appropriate. I really wanted to step out of those seats and into the screen and be part of Slade in Flame. But the film came and went. It didn't take a whole bunch of money, and Slade's career started to become on the wane. Years later, I mean many years later, I was in Manchester in bands that were playing around then and Slade came to play at Manchester University. Somebody made a student documentary about the difference in lifestyles between a student band, the band I was in, and a huge rock star band, obviously Slade. The way they did this was that they filmed me and my other band members walking around the university looking glum, shifting our own equipment, and then they filmed Slade turning up and having roadies bring their equipment in for them. I think the point of the documentary was like, hey, look, rock stars don't lug their own equipment around. But anyone who knows anything about Slade knows that they had done plenty of lugging their own equipment around for years and years and years, and stardom had not come easy to them. They had worked long and hard, and they achieved their success because, well, they were a brilliant band, and they could really play. Many years after that, I ended up taking a 35mm print of Slade in Flame around various venues in the UK. I actually cooked up a lecture for it. I would introduce the film. I would begin by saying, how many people have seen this and how many people are here to mock and to sneer? A large number of people back then thought they were coming along to see something like Never Too Young to Rock or Side by Side or Gonks Go Beat. And then they'd be startled by just how tough, just how gritty, just how, well, frankly, really good Slade in Flame was. It was a knackered old print, but I loved it. And I also liked the fact that I was flying the flag for this movie that nobody else thought was particularly good at the time. And slowly its reputation started to grow. There was an event at the BFI that I wasn't at, but I had heard reports that Noddy Holder mentioned my name on screen. Sometime after that, I did a quiz show on a television station called Men and Motors. It wasn't a great station. I think the name pretty much says everything. As far as I understand, during the daytime, it was programs about cars. And then during the evening, it was, well, other programs. There was a program which was a rock quiz that I think was presented by Mike Sweeney. And one of the team captains was Noddy Holder. And I was asked to go on the program. And initially I said, no, I don't want to be on a rock quiz on men and motors. And then somebody pointed out to me that one of the team captains was Noddy Holder. And I immediately backtracked and agreed just so that I could get to meet Noddy Holder. In fact, my main memory of that day was meeting Noddy Holder. I don't remember anything else about the quiz, which is strange because since men and motors didn't have that many programs, apparently that episode was put into hard rotation for years afterwards. I just kept bumping into people saying, I just saw you 
you on men and motors. I could not escape from that program, but it didn't matter because I got to meet Noddy Holder. And he was every bit as brilliant as I thought he was going to be. And I told him straight off the bat that I thought Slade in Flame was the Citizen Kane of British rock movies. And he laughed, but laughed in a way that suggested that, yeah, he thought it was pretty good too. Or at least that's what I took away from it. Okay, stand by studio. And you're listening to the Ricky Storm Show right here on the Tower of Power. There you had it. That's the new record by Flame. And as I promised you earlier on in the afternoon, and I never let you down, let's face it, here they are in the studio. Hi, lads. Welcome to Radio City. Would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Stoker. I'm Paul. I'm Barry. I'm Seasick. <laughs> now, um, Paul, is it true that you're the creative force behind the group? Uh, no. Stoker, give me an honest answer on this one. This is your first record and it's gone down remarkably well. How do you feel about it going down so well? A few of us are more worried about what's coming up at the moment. <laughs> Any chance of seeing you guys on television in the near future? Uh, well, hopefully, uh, yeah, definitely. That's good. Something to look forward to there. You'll see them on television soon, but television this isn't. This is Radio City. Let's hear the B-side of their new record. It's called Heaven Knows. And I'm sure it does. Caught between the jungle so, and the Just recently, I wrote a book called How Does It Feel, which takes its title not from the Bob Dylan song, but from the Slade single from Slade in Flame. I still think that How Does It Feel is Slade's greatest moment. In fact, I think that soundtrack album is their best album. The story is nominally set in the 1960s, although frankly, you could watch Slade in Flame without ever really knowing that. But what the band did was that they retrofitted their traditional glam stomp with a 60s style brass section. And it really, really opened up the possibilities of their songwriting. And I think How Does It Feel is something I would carry with me to my grave as one of my favourite songs because it's poignant and because it's melancholic and because it's slayed. Anyway, I wrote this book about a lifetime of being in bands, of never actually managing to make it as a pop star, which when I was a kid was the thing I really, really wanted to do. I mean, I've carried on playing in bands ever since. It turned out I was a rubbish guitarist. The problem wasn't my guitar, which was perfectly fine. The problem was that I'm very, very cack-handed. So I ended up playing bass instead because, well, fewer strings and harder to break. That guitar that I built got stolen from a flat that I lived in in Hume in Manchester. Bizarrely enough, at the time that it got stolen, it was in the flat sitting alongside a 1963 black Fender Stratocaster, which was worth a huge amount of money. But hey, despite what the movies tell you, criminals aren't that smart. The people that broke into my flat in Hume took one look at the several thousands of pounds worth of Fender Stratocaster and decided to leave it behind and steal the homemade, weird, flying V-shaped I Want to Be Dave Hill guitar that I had built from a design in practical electronics and which wasn't worth the glue and chipboard that I used to make it. If anyone ever finds that guitar, it's probably sitting in somebody's attic or being used as a cricket bat. I'd really like to get it back and I'd be willing to pay up to 25 quid to have it. But I wrote the book and I wrote the book about being in bands and about recording at Sun Studio and about playing Glastonbury with the Dodge Brothers and about being in a television series with the Railtown Bottlers and about being the musical director of a BBC television series, despite the fact that I can't read music. But the whole thing comes back to Slade in Flame. Like every really great movie, it's something that I carry with me all the time. There's barely a day goes by that I don't think of that film. In fact, in that respect, it's not unlike The Exorcist. It's just something that's there, like my left arm. I don't know anymore whether it would be possible to make a movie like Slade in Flame. 
partly because if you were a really successful rock band, you wouldn't want to do anything that might have your fans questioning whether or not they thought you were as fabulous as they did before they saw the film. But nowadays, it's become fairly commonplace to say that Slade in Flame, or Flame, is in fact one of the best rock movies ever made. One of the strange things that happened with it was that apparently in the original script, there was some tougher material, some swearing, the kind of thing that would have got it an X rating, which is what performance had. When Slade in Flame finally came out here, it had an A rating. It was actually acceptable for all audiences. But if you read the novelization, which is written by John Pidgeon, and believe me, a lot of people have, it was a very, very popular paperback, you get more of a sense perhaps of what the original script looked like. Also, the novelization fills out some areas in the backstory, specifically in relation to the character of Jack Daniels that just widens out the story. But I like the idea that in order to fully appreciate Slade in Flame, you have to read a book and you have to listen to a soundtrack album and you have to know something about the history of the great British pop movie. Don't just take my word for it. There is now a very nice disc of the movie available for which I think I wrote some sleeve notes. See it and be astonished. When I turned 50, my wife Linda organised a screening in a local cinema of Slade in Flame. We all sat in the small screen in the plaza in Truro, which is one of my favourite cinemas, and watched that movie. And I know a lot of people who turned up thought, oh, this is going to be one of Mark's little foibles like Dougal and the Blue Cat. But actually, pretty much everyone loved it. Plus, it's short. It's about an hour and a half long. It's not indulgent. It just comes and goes in double quick time and leaves you with the impression that you want more. It's a great film. They're a great band. I love the album. I love the book. And I love Slade in Flame. So there we are. We'll be returning to 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die the next time we haven't got a million other things backed up. As I said, we probably won't ever get to 2001 Movies, but who cares? Oh, and incidentally, I mentioned in that podcast that I did write about all this in a book called How Does It Feel, which conveniently is currently out in paperback, hardback, and as an audiobook read by me. Don't miss it. It's fab. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.